Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Elaine's mission? End the silence, stigma, and shame about suicide, ideation, and mental health. Sharing your burden can lighten your load. Elaine says we must normalize the conversation to make it easier for you to voice your pain and be able to ask for help. Reaching out to another human being when you're in need of a listening ear must become the norm. Please note, the Suicide Zen Forgiveness podcast is for education only. Some of this subject matter could be triggering. For those of you that are either grieving or having mental health problems, please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. And now, here's your host, Elaine Lindsay. So I'm excited to share with you my guest, Losa McCoy. Hello. So glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I I think it's not just interesting, but for me, it's exciting that we get to have a talk where you can cover a variety of topics that we deal with. And sometimes it's, you never know who's listening. Mm-hmm. You never know who needs a certain nugget. So I think... With that said, we're just going to go ahead and let you start with your story. Okay. My name is Losa McCoy. I have dealt with depression and suicide ideation throughout my life. As you can tell, I've got a little band on my head here. The last year, I've dealt with breast cancer, stage two breast cancer. It almost took me out a couple of times. They say to you when you start cancer treatment, we're going to bring you to the brink of death with the chemo treatments, and then we hope that you have the strength to come back from that. (laughs) And so I had to find strength where I did not know I had strength this year. I had to put aside all of the other little quibbles of my life and realize that cancer is It might take me out, but I'm going to go out fighting. Yes, I have two children that I love dearly, and having to go through cancer treatment and watch them suffer has been probably the hardest part of cancer treatment, is knowing that your loved ones are suffering in a different way because cancer is a very lonely journey, and but to see how it affects everybody else in your lifestyle, not lifestyle, but everybody else in your life. It's very horrifying. And I wish I could change that. Yeah. And as a mom, I know you, you don't want to hurt your children. And even though, you know, it is not intentional as a mom, you feel that mom guilt about bringing stress into their lives. I think mom guilt needs to be more, it's profound. And I don't think people really realize that mom guilt is a real thing. It needs to be talked about. It's part of mental health, part of mental health treatment. Okay. Thank you, Losa, because that is yet another thing that we don't talk about. And it can be because we're sick, it can be because we are financially unable 
to raise our children above ourselves, which is what all parents want to do. It can be a child being bullied in the schoolyard. As the mom, you have this guilt that you can't be there. You can't take those blows for your child. You you can't step right. in and make it all right. And I don't think people realize the burden that is. Because once you have a child, that child is yours 24-7. Exactly. And mine are adult children. I have a 29-year-old and a 23-year-old. And no matter what, no matter how old they are, they're still my babies. They're still my children. I still, like I said, and just, they both came to me over the holidays. Different. My oldest son who lives in Denver came to me on Thanksgiving and was like, I didn't know if you'd make it to Thanksgiving. And then my youngest came to me on Christmas morning and was like, I didn't know you were going to make it. And I didn't know if I'd spent my last Christmas with you. And it just breaks your heart as a parent. And I think that anytime that you have a child that goes through trauma, you, you, the first thing you want to do is step up and be like, I can be the mom. I can let me fix this for you. Mm -hmm. And because I'm fighting my own battle with cancer, I couldn't tell them everything's going to be okay. It's going to, I just don't know the answers. And so I didn't have answers for them, but I'm surviving. And and we're very glad that you are. (laughs) I'm in your boat, adult children. My daughter is 50. My son is uh, 42 in January. And they never stop being your children. They don't. Even when they're estranged, it does not change how you feel as a parent. And I think I'm not going to denigrate dads or or dads have their feelings. And mom, the mom guilt and the mom feeling of we have to provide the comfort. We have to be there at all times. It is something that just comes with being a mom. It's not really does. Yeah. It's not something someone put on us. It's not, I I don't even know how to explain it, but it's a, it's, it fills you up the moment you have a child and there is always going to be that piece of you. You know, even with the children that we've lost, that peace remains that guilt for, for not being or doing or saying whatever. Yeah. When my husband, bless his heart, he pushed me to journal my first six months of cancer treatment. And two of the journalings were specifically dedicated to my children. And I read through them recently because so much changes in your life, especially if you have cancer in six months, in a six month time period. And I realized how sad my kids were just sad. They would come to me and they would just be sad. And I could not comfort them because of the pain that I was going through. I'm sure, Losa, there are times I'm sure you can't comfort yourself. Right. Okay. This is a huge beast you're dealing with. It's hard for people who haven't gone through it or haven't had someone in their family go through cancer to, to really understand the toll it takes on everyone in the family, on everyone around you. Right. And 
as a mom, that constant need to be there for everyone else can be a, a double-edged sword, if you will. It really you can really be. Need to focus on you. Yeah. And that was, that's a part that I think I've learned through the last year. February 1st, it'll be a year that I found out that I had cancer. And February 2nd of this next year is my last cancer treatment. So it'll be a full year that I've been doing it. And I've been in the hospital a couple of times just because it's been hard. But having to know that right now I'm focused on my health and getting well and knowing that everybody else has to just take a very comforting second step back that I have to do what I have to do in order to survive this beast. I think that cancer can be such a lonely thing, especially even if you have, I have just an amazing support group that surrounds me that helped, that's helped me get through this. But ultimately when it comes down to it at two o'clock in the morning, because cancer causes you not to be able to sleep and you're up looking around for something to do, you think this is a lonely battle. And I, I just, I can't emphasize that enough for people that if you know somebody who's going through cancer there, it is a lonely battle that you have to go through regardless of how many people that you love and that stay close to you because they're not experiencing these problems. They're not experiencing these things like the feeling of I'm so tired. And this is where the suicide ideation comes in. I'm so tired. I just want to die, but I'm too happy to be alive because of having cancer to want to be dead. Does that make sense? It's funny, but funny. I don't mean funny. Ha ha. It's funny. Bizarre that I totally understand what you're saying because when you deal with suicidal ideation, it in itself is a weird beast. It really is. It's insidious. It, It pops in at the oddest times. And I think it's wonderful that you have that grasp on the happiness of staying alive because that's what will get you through even in those very difficult times. Right. Having ideation in a weird way, when all is said and done, it's, it can almost be a bonus because it can make you fight harder. It really can because you were thinking you're in this fight and you're like, who am I fighting for? And it may sound selfish to some, but I'm fighting for myself when it comes right down to it, whether it's cancer, whether it's suicide, whether it's any of a list of a hundred different things that it could be, I'm fighting for me and I have to fight for me in order to take that next step. Sometimes it's, sometimes the fight's only the next couple of minutes and sometimes the fight is the next couple of weeks. But right now I'm fighting just, I'm fighting for myself and I don't think it's selfish. Mm -mm. Absolutely not. It took me the longest time to understand, you know, that old adage, they tell you, you you have to put oxygen on yourself in the plane before you can help anybody else. I used to think that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard until I really paid attention 
and realize, yeah, without the oxygen, you're not helping anybody else. Right. It took a lot of ideation to really show me that, you know what, I could find a useful piece in the ideation in that it actually caused me to count my blessings, to pay attention to the good pieces and realize that, you know what, they outweighed the bad. You know, my husband says about suicide ideation is it's a permanent solution to temporary problems. And then I have to remind myself, I've made it through the last, I've made it through all my bad days. And some days I didn't think I'd make it, but I've made it through all my bad days a hundred percent. So I'm already winning. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just sit back. I've had several, I've had a nephew and several other people who've committed suicide. And it really is. I look at their problems and I'm like, these are temporary. You're just, and it's always young. It's always young kids, like in their early twenties and that commit suicide that it seems that is the age a lot. And it's so awful because you just don't understand how little this will affect you in 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be so hard for people because pain can be all encompassing. And I've often had discussions with people about there are varying levels of pain, but for someone who has never had anything happen, has never had a a car accident or fallen off their bike or burned themselves. The worst thing that ever happened to a singular person, say they stubbed their toe. Right. Okay. They stubbed their toe. They broke their nail to that person. That is the worst pain in the world because that's the worst pain in their perspective. And I think we don't really we don't really look at things that way because we're always wrapped up in our own pain, whether it's mental, emotional, spiritual, or physical. Right. We tend to look at things comparatively. Okay, it's as I know a woman who lost both her legs. That to me is just incredible pain. Right. And yet, She's a happy, productive uh, person who took it on and came through the other side, deciding that life was more precious. Right. That's, like it's that saying that I just said, I'm too happy to be dead. I'm too happy to want to yes. die. Even it's, though it's, it's so hard. The battle is so hard. Yeah. And it, it's trying to get through to people who, don't really fully understand the permanency of death, mm-hmm. that their problem can be surmounted. It, it will change or something can be done to mitigate the circumstances. And I realize it's not that simple all the time and it's not that simple uh, for everybody. But when you've had the chance to go through a variety of different traumas. Mm-hmm. And for mothers, that's right from childbirth on. Exactly. Okay, that's oh, a yeah. trauma. It's a trauma for the child. It's a trauma for the mother. Being able to get through these things 
and always looking to be mindful and be grateful for the good pieces. And it's weird, but suicidal ideation can cause you to be more mindful and to spend more time actually considering I have this and I have this and and I am happy, I see the birds, I hear the birds sing, I see the animals around me, I can walk in nature. I, all of those little things we can add up. And as comparative beings, we can compare that to the loss, if you will, the nothingness that is no longer being. Right. You know, I think that the suicide ideation in itself needs to be unstigmatized because they're like, oh, you're suicide. You have suicide ideation. Then you have, you should be on medication. You should do this. You should do that. And I'm like, no, sometimes you just need to talk it out. Sometimes you, and you need to make sure that people know that talking about suicide because you feel the urge that you would like to commit suicide isn't the problem. The problem is in your mind and you need someone to help you work through that. And and you're absolutely right. The problem is we have shoved this under the carpet for so long and we don't talk about these things right. that people don't really have a chance to look at what does this encompass? Let's get together with a few people and let's talk about how you're feeling. Let's really right. examine this. It doesn't happen. And I have a really good friend who... Pardon the dog show. in the background. I'm sorry. So sorry if you oh. hear my dog bark. <laughs> yeah, no, not even hearing it. And if we do hear it, you'll hear mine responding. <laughs> so, well, hopefully we'll pass on the course. Yeah. But yeah, my good friend Rex Sykes, who's been on the show, he has asked a question that I think is critically important. We have never, ever been taught to drive our brain. Right. Oh, yeah. Totally. You think, oh, my God, you have to get a license to drive a motorcycle, a car. You have to be a certain age to drink. You have to have a license for all kinds of, you have to have a license almost for your garbage. Right. No license. There's no training for how to manage your brain. And let's face it, your brain is this huge supercomputer that we don't do very much with because there's no manual, there's no training, there's no courses, there's nothing that intrinsically says, oh, I'm going to go for some brain training. I'm going to take care of what drives me, what what runs my urges, what keeps me going and breathing and all of that. There's no, it's like there's, nothing there's manuals there. that need to be given out at certain levels of life. <laughs> yeah, like in my yeah. 20s, I could have used a manual about the suicide yeah. ideation yeah. plus a manual about how to raise children and raise yeah. children in a healthy, emotional yes. state, which God praise to the Lord above. My children both are, my youngest does have suicide ideation. But because I've made it a normal conversation in our house, he feels like he can come up to me and say, I have a little bit of suicide ideation today, mom. And I'm like, then let's talk it out. 
what's going on that's causing that. And to normalize it in my house, I know that it can be done in the world. Absolutely. We just have to put it out there and stop hiding stuff. Right. No, we don't. There's so many conversations we're not comfortable with. Okay. People, so many people don't like to talk about death at all. You end up hearing about people that didn't have a will. They, their families are left not knowing where the bank accounts are or, or things like that because it's, it's a conversation people were not comfortable with. I can say that because I'm one of the worst offenders. I never wanted, when the kids were really little, to make a will or think of anything like that. Or as my grandmother got older, I didn't want to know that. I, I, I just know this. If I just close my eyes and don't think about it, it's not going to be happening, which is a really ridiculous way to go through life. But so many but, people do it that way. Yeah, and it depends. It yeah. really depends on the situation too. I'm that way in some situations. Like when it came to my cancer, the first about three or four months, I was like, do what you have to do. I'm just going to ignore everything else yeah. until yeah. I got super, super sick and ended up in the hospital. Then I was like, you know what? This cancer is, it's real. It's real. And I can't. You can't take it on unless you know all about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I just, it's, it goes back to the mothering thing where you you just want to fix everything. Yeah. And you can't. I just, I wish I could. Oh, absolutely. I, I would like to wave a magic wand over all the people that matter to me and just make everybody good in the whole world and, I I realize that's my pipe dream, but understanding that we have to take these things out of the boxes we've hidden them in. Oh, definitely. It wasn't that long ago that people with suicide ideation were automatically locked up. I know. I know. That that was 50 years ago. That's not that long ago. 50 years ago, you would have been locked up if you had... If you, yeah. if we dared to even have this conversation, they'd be like, Losa and Elaine need to get into the cuckoo nest. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because I've now said this on probably four or five shows, but when I was a teenager, okay, there was a song that was called, we're coming to take you away, ha, he, ho, to the funny farm, Oy. where life is perfect all the time. And that then the little men take you somewhere. It was, for me, I worked at a facility, a mental health facility, which back then was called an asylum. Right. I saw what was being done or not done for people. And I knew that even though I didn't know the term suicidal ideation when I was a teenager, I just knew that one of the options, if I got a run in my stocking or burnt the toast, one of the options was I could just end it. It didn't make sense to me, but that's what happened in my head. And all I knew was, you don't say that out loud. No, you don't. My great, not my great grandmother was institutionalized the last about 30 or 40 years of her life. And my mom, my mother would go to visit her and see the horribleness that the asylums were back in the 60s and the 70s before the 
government came in and started changing everything. Yeah. <laughs> but and, in a good down. way, definitely in a good way for mental health. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She, she made it a stigma in our house. Like you're going to end up like grandma if in an institution, if you don't, if we, but we don't talk about it. So let's not talk about it and you won't end up there because not talking about it makes it so that it's not really real. And so I had oh, to absolutely. stop that stigmatism with in my life growing up with my kids because I didn't want my kids to be afraid that if they said the wrong thing, they would go to the funny farm, as they say, or end up yeah. like great grandma. And that was a hard, that was hard growing up. That was yeah. really yeah. hard having that so close. And then a mother who was just yeah. like, nope, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to, let's not talk about grandma. She wasn't really crazy. She just heard things. And I'm like, that that's the definition of <laughs> Yeah. And the thing is, okay, we now know, okay, that energy is all around us. There's so much more than we comprehend. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these people were never crazy. They just had more sensory input than we did. Right. It didn't make them crazy, but it left them in a world of their own because no one knew how to deal with it because nobody talked about it. Exactly. That nailed it right on the head. Exactly. Yeah. If you yeah. we could just, un, if I could choose one thing to change, I would change the stigmatism around mental health. It just, it, it's unfortunate. And though people who scream the loudest about it are the ones that they think are the craziest. So yeah. that we don't get the non-stigmatism, we don't get to unstigmatize no. it because they're like, oh, that's, that's crazy. They've spent time in an institute. And yeah, we, we've come a long way. And I like, I love Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. Exactly. And I will say that millennials and Gen Z they are coming at things with a much more open mind. They are much more willing to look at the things we can't see, to consider the esoteric, to be open to right. something other than. They have more global concerns than we did. They want to look after the environment. They want to look into climate change and things that people of my generation want nothing to do with. Because it's, so, I think that the it's a, if it doesn't affect me personally, then it's not something that I need to worry about is a lot of the, I don't have anybody, like it comes down to the, I'm not going to pass a bill if I was a congressman about suicide because I don't know anybody who's committed suicide. And that's the bad thing. And I'm like, do you have to have somebody in your life that you've lost to this disease that is totally treatable? The unfortunate thing is, quite often, humans do not find empathy until someone close to them has suffered. Yep. Unless you I go through it. And I've said for decades now, if you want to be a nurse or a paramedic or a doctor, then you must spend 48 hours in a hospital having all of the invasive tests that people have who are honestly sick. Right. Because without that, 
you can't be empathetic to when they're putting in a pick line and they're hurting somebody. Right. When they're putting in a chest tube and the pain that goes along with that. When you're taking blood from someone who has difficult veins, just having that little bit of empathy can make things very different. I have that it just touches on everything that I've been through in the last couple of months. Because I asked a doctor, I had surgery and they won't prescribe me painkillers because I'm blacklisted because I was addicted to painkillers after being prescribed them for 20 years. And then it was a stigmatism of that. But then they say, you should be able to handle this with ibuprofen. And I'm like, have you handled this with ibuprofen? (laughs) Are you, have you had this surgery? No. Then don't go and tell me what my pain level is and what it can be controlled by. Because my pain level is different than your pain level and you may, but it's still that another stigmatism that we have to get by. You know what I mean? And that's, that's part and parcel of why I do this because I want us to be more open. I want us to look at changing things so people can be included And I want people to understand that you can reach out to another human being, even one you don't know. The first one may not help, but the second one probably will. We have to understand that it took me so long to get the message that no person is an island. We need to have other humans around us. It's true. We seek connection. Absolutely. Have you and, read any we, Renee Brown? She does a big thing on connection. Yeah. Love her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she, she's absolutely wonderful. And from her very first book, her first TED talk, it was like, oh my God, she so gets it. Right. She said because, something that's, that will encompass everything that we're talking about. She said that if you are not in the arena with that person fighting with them, you have no say in how they treat are treated you can they have nothing you just ignore them they're not in the arena with you no no absolutely that is absolutely correct and understanding that all humans are different understanding that some people's perception of little things may be the same as someone's perception of something huge, but not judging and making allowances for the fact that maybe they only have a teeny tiny tolerance for pain for whatever reason. And just understanding that too is okay. Right. Because even with a teeny tiny tolerance, you can learn to have empathy for others. Exactly. And I think that it's important, like you said, for these doctors, these nurses, these caregivers to experience it themselves, because at that point, they are more able to treat a patient in uh, in the proper way, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I am a firm believer in medical students learning. I, I totally get that. Um, I just had an incident a few weeks ago. I had to go for a CAT scan and um, I I don't have the best veins. I have had many <laughs> surgeries 
and I just don't have good veins. Never did. Right. Uh, a young student who came at me first, I said, how many times have you done this? And she said, oh, just a couple. I said, I understand that you need to learn. I'm terribly sorry, but you cannot learn on me. Right. If with you early in your career, I don't want to scare you off doing what you're doing. And I don't want to be put through lots of pain. It still took three people, very experienced people, 12 tries. Oh, goodness. For them to finally figure out that they just, there was absolutely no way they were getting an IV started on me. So we had to do the CAT scan without. But those were three very senior people. They went and got someone who that's all they do. And even that person said, yeah, there's just no way. Like we're getting nothing. And cancer will destroy your veins. I had really good veins when I started my cancer treatment. Now it's like they really have to hunt and peck for me. And I have a pick line that they can draw through. But not everybody has experience in drawing from no. a line. I have to have no, specialized in order to get that done. Yeah. But I feel you, man. I used to be a phlebotomist. I was a phlebotomist for about 15 years. And oh, wow. Yeah. That was my, I was worked in the medical field until I realized people are dying. People die in the medical field. And you have, and I had no empathy towards that. And I said, I can't, I can't work where I don't have empathy. I need to do something else. And that's what got me into computers, which is what I currently do. I work with computers and I'm like, computers never die. And if they do, you can just replace it. So yeah. that was my, that's my story about my medical treatment. But yeah, I was a phlebotomist for years and years. And I feel you. If someone said I was a hard stick, I was like, all right, let's give it the old heave ho. Yeah. <laughs> And the student, she was a lovely young woman. And the I think it was the third person that was trying. She said, oh, my God, I saw that move. And because the woman was trying to explain to her what happened in this yeah. case. She was, oh, that really did move. I said, yeah, you should yeah. feel it from this side. I had a, <laughs> they had to do an ultrasound on my arm in order mm-hmm. to place an yeah, ultra- yeah. in the hospital. And they had to do an ultrasound just to find the veins. It was so yeah. fascinating. I, I worked in the medical field. So anything that has to do with that kind of stuff just fascinates oh, me. Yeah. But she wasn't yeah. even looking at my arm. She totally was looking at the ultrasound machine, holding the wand and sticking me at the same time. And Ooh. she got my vein, which I'm more than grateful for. But still, that I don't know how people, technology... It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, at the big main hospital, I've gone through that where they were using the ultrasound. And it was funny because, again, the ultrasound guy was saying to the nurse, they had two nurses, one on either side and the ultrasound guy. And my friend was in the room and he kept saying to her, do you see that? Do you see that? It's like they just packed up and left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're talking spent a lot of time there. I know a lot of the medical people in yeah. most of the hospitals around here. Wait, and enough, enough. That was, um, that was very interesting because we covered so many areas that all come back to the same thing. Okay. We as humans have to be empathetic to others. 
Oh, yes. We have to drop the judgment. And we have to understand that each and every person's experience can be very different. It doesn't make it better or worse or less or more. It's just different. Yep, I agree with you. Yeah, and I think becoming mindful of that is really important. That's one of my words for 2024. I pick words instead of goals. I pick words. And mindful is one of my goals for 2024, to be more mindful. I think that there, there's a lack of empathy when you're not mindful. And mindfulness starts with yourself. If I'm mindful and I'm able to say, okay, today is not a good day, I probably shouldn't go to the post office. (laughs) It's about being mindful. Like, I don't want to fight the people at the post office today. Today is not a good day for that. And that is learning to be mindful and to say, today is not that kind of day. And something I want people to understand, because it's good we're on this topic. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I'm not quite sure how to do a mindful exercise or how to do a mindful meditation or what have you. The very fact that you take one minute, two minutes to pay attention, just pay attention to your breathing. Feel how your hands feel, how your feet feel. Right. Is your body feeling in alignment? Are you warm? Are you cold? Are you comfortable? Yep. How my feet are touching the floor. My feet are touching the floor. I'm grounded to the floor. And that's usually how I start my meditation if I'm sitting at my desk. is because You have to be mindful of where you're at in the position in order to tap into that part of your brain, I think. You have to know where you're at physically. But it can be as little as that. Just paying attention for a few minutes. It's not some big fancy meditation or some huge visualization being mindful is just that it's just being present in that moment right right i was talking to a yoga instructor today and she sent me a link where she does a 1 minute meditation for people trying when you're just need a minute of meditation and she walks yeah. you through a minute long meditation and i'm like i was so shocked i'm like i never thought I know that I'm mindful and that I need to be mindful, but to walk through, but I don't always have time. And so one minute of meditation, anybody, you can do anything for 60 seconds. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And for some of us, okay, I have a thing about cleaning the bathroom. (laughs) I like the bathroom to be super clean. Right. That's a place. It's something I can do. That sort of doesn't take all of my mind. So I can be mindful of how well I'm doing it. Be mindful of being there in the moment, putting effort in to do a good job. And that in itself is a decent meditation. Yep. Yep. I totally agree with you on that. Um, I'm not into cleaning, but I'm into journaling. (laughs) Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I journal a lot and taking, I said five minutes and just free writing, meaning yeah. that I'm maybe sometimes it's just a, just a free thought of just, I want to be meditating more or something like that. 
is so important where you can be mindless, but still mindful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I think that's really important because we have to understand that it's not the big pomp and circumstance stuff that helps us the most. It's the little things that we can get to quickly. Yes. To help us in the moment. Yep. And the more you do that, the more often you take the time to do these things, the more likely you are to catch yourself before you start reacting to things and reacting poorly. My, like I said, I tried to unstigmatize mental health and talking about mental health with my children because I think it starts with the children. Oh, absolutely. Especially in this day and age, it really does start with the children. And I always ask my son if he comes up to me, my youngest lives with us still, and he says, I'm having a bad mental health day. What are, do we have? In, what are we in control of right at this moment? What do we have right at this moment that we are in control of? Give me two things. And I'll say that to my son. Just give me two things that we are in control of. And that mindful exercise is very helpful. For people, it brings, it immediately takes you out of the self-loathing and puts you into problem solving. What problems do I have that I can solve right at this moment? Absolutely. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I love that. I, I, something just between you, me and your listeners is that I just love that I've unstigmatized mental health in my family, considering how I grew up. I grew up in. It's wonderful that you have because not all people get or take the opportunity to make it different. And and again, a strength that you have in taking that. And when we have these kinds of inner strengths, I think it's really useful to take a moment and Make sure you visually gather them in your toolbox so you've got them ready when you need to use them, especially for yourself. Yeah. And I love that one of the things that you said that I use now is that golden room, that golden light. Oh. And that I was having a bad day and I was like, I just, I'm going to take my broom and I'm going to sweep it out of it because all that I want in this room is the golden light of grace and love. Thank you. For the audience, Losa and I have spoken before. Yes, sorry. (laughs) And I talked to her about, I was given many years ago by my spiritual advisor, a visualization of a golden net that was made of golden light that you could use for all kinds of things. It started for me with wrapping my car every time I left the house. And I cannot tell you how many times I have avoided poles and animals, people, and things that you just have to shake your head and think, wow, if I was not protected, what would have happened? Right. And that I shared with Losa that that golden light, wrapping yourself in it, detoxing with it every day in the shower, just using that as a barrier between the negative and you. Getting rid of all the garbage has to stay outside of your golden light. That net is your perimeter, if you will, 
Right. And all the golden light within is there to serve and fill you up. Exactly. That's so wonderful that you yep. use that. I do. And I even explained, I explained it to my husband and he was like, he was a little, he's not as in tune as I am. <laughs> I'm trying to get him to come on the podcast and just do some trucker knowledge. Cause he's a truck driver Oh, cool. and truck drivers look at the world in a very different and yeah. very different way. And so I try to get him to, I explained it to him and he was like golden light. And I'm like, golden light. <laughs> Yeah, he needs to net that truck and then all his golden light will keep his truck, him, his truck and everything within safe. safe. Absolutely yep. safe. Definitely. Yeah. The kids used to think I was crazy, but they did it anyway. And a few years after I started doing that, my daughter had called. They lived in another city. And she said, okay, mom, I'm never going to make fun of your golden net again. I wrapped the car before we got in the car. Noah was asleep, my youngest, at that time, youngest grandson. And they stopped at a red light with a car in front of them and a car behind them. And the second car didn't stop and went through the car behind them and, and totaled her vehicle and the car ahead of her. And not one scratch on any of them. Oh, praise be. Yeah. And she said, Mom, I don't know how. They like, you look at the car, I don't know how. But I will never make fun of you again. Well, yeah. <laughs> In terms of golden net. Yep. I love it. I love the analogy. I use it. I've used it several times since our conversation. So thank That's you for that. Fun. That's well. I thank Patricia Wall, who is my spiritual advisor. Now retired, but still one of the best human beings I know. (laughs) It's good to have people like that on your side, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's another thing. When you are grateful, when you start seeing the world around you in a positive light, oh my God, it's amazing how many wonderful people come out of the woodwork and how you can surround yourself with so much goodness. That was one thing that when I got sick with the cancer, that my therapist was like, you have to have gratitude. I was so angry. I was so angry when I first got sick and I was so distraught about being, having cancer and I didn't want to have cancer and I don't want to have cancer. And I got really angry and she's, you need to be grateful. You need to be grateful. She's every single day you need to write down something that you're grateful for. And I roped my sisters into it because I very close to them. And I said, I need your guys' help to walk while I'm going through chemo to write to you every single day with a grateful act, with something I'm grateful for. And that saved my life literally in some aspects in the last couple of the last year. Absolutely. It is so true when you surround yourself with positive. Okay. It just makes room for more positive. It really really does. Yeah. When I was in the hospital one day, one of the nurses came and she's like, I love to come in your room because you're so positive, but you're one of the sickest people we have here. And how do you do that? And I was like, I just am grateful to be alive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that, that 
I think is a perfect place to wrap this up because being grateful, no matter where you are in your journey, will take you forward yep. in a good way. Exactly. may not feel it that second, but being grateful makes the difference. It, it really does. Difference. Really, truly does. Losa, thank you so much. Our guest today, Losa McCoy, has shared her journey and given us tons and tons of really useful nuggets, which is something I am eternally grateful for. You're very Thank welcome. you for using that golden light and our golden net. And uh, we will make sure, I think we can mention that on the page where the transcript is for <laughs> this episode, because I think it's yep. important. Thank you so much. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide Then Forgiveness. And as always, make the very best of your today every day. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here for another inspiring episode of Suicide Zen Forgiveness. We appreciate you tuning in. Please subscribe and download on your favorite service and check out SZF's YouTube channel or Facebook community. If you have the chance to leave a five-star rating or review, it'd be greatly appreciated. Please refer this to a friend you know who may benefit from the hope and inspiration from our guests. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by the following sponsors. Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you rocking page one in the search results. Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Croon, motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City, Judy has been involved for over a decade in the City Street Outreach Program in Toronto. Lisa Sugarman, Boston-based author, columnist, and crisis counselor with The Trevor Project, America's largest suicide and crisis support network for at-risk LGBTQ youth, storyteller with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, survivor of suicide loss, and mental health advocate. Lisa's purpose aligns with Elaine's as Lisa shares content and sparks conversations to help end the stigma of suicide and connect people with the support and hope they deserve. Do you have a story to share? Do you know someone you think would be a great guest? Please go to szf42.com. And for our American listeners, that's szf42.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again.